If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, we today are going to be having an amazing conversation with Neil Gordon. And let me just give you a little bit of a teaser about what we're going to be talking about. If you're an executive director, a program manager, or maybe a board member, you've undoubtedly had the experience where you need to present in front of a group, whether that is an association or that is a rotary club and you're presenting about your organization. We have all been there. And we've also all been there where we realize about five minutes into the presentation that we have lost almost every single person in the crowd. Like they're checking their phones or they're just checking out. Like you can literally tell they're checking out. And our conversation with Neil today is going to really help us craft our art in public speaking just a little bit better so that people don't check out, so that people engage and that people follow up. Now, before I intro Neil, let me just share with you, I believe this episode, we're recording it in August. I think it's going to be released sometime in October. I think it's actually going to be released right before I go on vacation, assuming the Delta variant does not destroy the world as we know it. It's going to be released right before I go on vacation. So I am probably right now preparing to leave for vacation, but I'll share with you that as we're looking at our calendar at Successful Nonprofits, pretty much our bandwidth from now until the end of the year is really, really narrow. We're busy on a lot of client projects right now. But we are having conversations about projects that are going to start in early 2022. So if you're thinking about a project, whether that's strategic planning or coaching or board development or something else that might start in 2022, and you're interested in having a conversation, reach out at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And now, let me introduce Neil Gordon to you. Neil Gordon is really kind of an amazing person because he grew up hating reading and frankly also hated those written reports we had to do in school. And that didn't change in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, or even college. Funny enough, 
when I read through his bio, I found out that what changed his relationship with words and reading was actually the New York subway, which I love because I have always enjoyed the New York subway. My motto for the New York subway is the show is free. But some people don't like that show. So instead, they bring a book and they read on the subway. And it's interesting because that's where Neil really found his love of the written word and his love of the word. He moved from really starting to devour books and love reading to being an editor at Penguin Random House, which, of course, is a major publisher in the U.S. and internationally. But he did not stop there. He realized that there was this amazing opportunity to really help authors and public speakers create content so that they could engage their audiences better and really help their audiences get what they as an audience, as individuals in the audience, wanted. And so when I first read about Neil, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, we, we got to have him on the podcast. So today he's going to help us be better presenters and better public speakers. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for that intro, Dolph. That was amazing. Well, thank you. And I'm grateful that you, I know you're super busy, so I'm grateful you squeezed in some time for us to have this conversation today. And when I was reading through your bio and reading some materials about you, I was struck by what I could only describe as a two-minute public speaker makeover. Mm. This is recalling a specific thing that happened with a client of mine a handful of years ago in that she was the program director for a program at a children's hospital where I used to live in LA. And the program gifts books to children staying in the hospital and sends volunteers out to read bedside and has a therapeutic library, one of a kind program. And the, the problem was is that while she had all of these amazing things that happened within the program and people would go and read bedside and there would be parents of the children saying that the bedside readers were the highlight of the stay at the hospital and the whole thing. Whenever she gave a talk on it, like a 10 minute talk to sponsors of the hospital or any other group of people, they would just glaze over and just kind of look at her stoically zone out on their phones or some other clear indication that they really weren't into it. And then at the end, they just politely clap. And that would be it. So I volunteered for that program for some time and when I still lived in LA. And I went in for my shift one day and she was very visibly flustered. And I found out from someone else that she had one of these talks to give. So I just went up to her and I said, hey, would you like to work out what you're going to say today? And she said, yes. And so we talked and figured out how to rearrange her, her talking points and all of that. And I saw her later that afternoon and asked her how it went. And she said she had them held wrapped at attention from the moment she started speaking. And instead of just being glazed over and politely clapping at the end, they rushed up to her with business cards. And one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. And as you said, Dolph, this was a two minute conversation. And so the big question is, how did we create such a notable night and day transformation in so little time? And the thing I haven't said yet is that prior to that day, 
she had actually been a client of mine. We met because I was one of her volunteers, but she took me on because she was going to be speaking on TV and wanted to be really concise with her messaging because she knew she wasn't going to have very much time to speak because she was appearing next to a TV star and how much time was she going to have for that? And so we worked out messaging prior to that day for that particular appearance that didn't then lent itself to such a quick makeover on the day of her presentation. So I got to know a little more. When you say you worked out messaging, I hate to sound this, that sounds like this big gray cloud, something goes in and I'm not sure what happens inside it. So talk to me about what happened inside that big gray cloud. There are probably a lot of our listeners who are familiar with the film Moneyball, which starred Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, and it came out about 10 years ago. And it tells the story of how the Oakland A's, the Major League Baseball team in Oakland, was this small market team that always tanked every season. And then they approached how they filled their roster in a completely different way, in a way we now know as Moneyball. And even though they had like a third of the cost, like their payroll cost like 400 million and the New York Yankees were like 1.2 billion or something like that. I hope I'm not screwing up those. Maybe it was 40 million and 120 million. I don't want to screw up the numbers there. But the point is, is that the Yankees had a payroll three times the size of the A's. And yet the A's broke the American League record for the most wins in a row of any American League team in history. And they also won the same number of games as the Yankees did that year. And so the movie tells the story how they did that. But before Brad Pitt's character embraces the concept of Moneyball, Jonah Hill is based on a fictional character, is pitching him this concept in a parking garage at the building where they both were at. And Jonah says that there is an epidemic failure in how most baseball teams are running their teams and trying to win the game. And what he says is that they're mostly just buying players, finding the best players, the highest salaries, and have the most home runs and the highest batting average and all of that. That they think they need to do is buy players, but what they need to buy is wins. And the way you buy those wins is through runs. And so runs becomes the thing that you go after. If you get on base and you score runs, that's what makes you a valuable player. And that's how they won all those games and broke the rec record for the most consecutive wins. And it's apparently that concept is also attributed to how the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox, broke the, uh, the curse of the Bambino several years later. The point isn't to talk about Moneyball. The point is to talk about how Jonah pitched the concept to Brad. This is a very sophisticated economic type concept. There's a lot of moving parts to it. But what Jonah did in that parking garage was distill the entire thing down to a single concept and more precisely, something we could turn into a simple sentence. And that this is paraphrasing what was implied by the conversation, but the way I would turn that into a single sentence is the key to winning at baseball is not to buy players, but to buy runs. And that is an essential idea. And to circle back to the gray cloud you addressed just now, Dolph, that is at the heart of the messages that I help my people to formulate. And in the specific context of nonprofit work, what my client did that day, and the reason why we were able to do this in two minutes is because I knew what her sentence was prior to that day. That's all I really knew. And then 
I was able to help her to engineer a talk very quickly that built up to that sentence as a climactic moment, drew them in right away, and then built up to a climactic moment. And because that sentence landed the way it did, it led to this sense that they got the program and what was at its heart and core, and that it was more significantly that it was possible. And if they supported this program, then they could have an impact like the program is meant to have. And the sentence very simply was, is even simpler than the Moneyball example. We just distilled it down to the simple sentence that literacy can heal. Hmm. That's what we had figured out prior to that day. And by move, building up to that one climactic idea, she was able to land the idea as to how we make that idea a reality. And they all got, they were like, oh, I never thought about literacy as a healing modality. And that led to all the interest that they had. It's interesting because it sounds like you were not giving this person a lot of coaching around, okay, use this word instead of that word or position yourself in a certain way. Right, right. We like the reason I can break down the two minutes. Basically, I, I just asked her, are you willing to take a risk with this talk? And she said, yes. And so I said, okay, instead of bearing, because she had a story about something that had just happened with a patient you know, honoring HIPAA. I mean, never giving any details or anything mm -hmm. like that, but, but a patient who was not doing well and there was a breakthrough around some reading that had happened just the night before she gave this talk. And she would have buried that further along into the talk. But the risk I had her take was just to start with the story as soon as she was introduced. And she said something along the lines of, I would have liked to have spent more time preparing for this talk today, but I couldn't because of something that happened last night. And every, that's where everyone was held wrapped at attention. She didn't visit and say, oh, it's so nice to be here and thank you for supporting the hospital and all that sort of thing. She just went right into the story and even a little bit of vulnerability about her lack of preparation and stuff. I mean, this is all very real and it was right off the gates. And so what I said was, all right, just start with the story. Don't start with describing the program or anything like that. And then identify the larger problem that patients and families of patients come to and are confronted by, by being at the hospital and talk about the other things that can happen and typically happen, but then start describing what you do in the program and then lead to the big idea. And the reason why the program is, exists is because literacy can heal. And then provide some statistics about the number of books you give and all the information you usually start with. Just leave that at the end so that they get all the stats and all of that. And then finish it up with just a simple, this is what we do. And thank you for sharing. And please let me know if there's anything I can tell you about, about some of the other aspects of the program or something like that. whatever it was. I'm glossing over a lot of it, but that, that basically is what the two minutes was. And she got it and she did it. And that's the result she got. Neil, I got to relate this real quick to my own life and really relate it to the podcast. So we are going on, I don't know the exact episode number. This will be we're somewhere between 225 and 250 episodes. Wow. And yeah. it has taken me a long time to learn that lesson. Like, hey, let's lead with a story because it's more engaging. But I'll also share with you it's interesting because what I now try to do when I ask the first question, I try to make it a question that leads into a story because the story is much more engaging. Every now and then, and no offense to the academicians out there, but 
this is often the academicians or the people who work at a think tank or something like that, um, where I'll ask a question that would normally prompt a story. And instead, we get right down to, well, there's 12 reasons why. And yeah. and it's everything I can do to just be like, please, no, 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 don't start this way. I've actually restarted them sometimes. And I'll also share with you the ones that, that we can't like break out of that mold of, okay, I'm going to start with data are often the ones that we just end up not running with because, you know, like, mm. like it, it just, what we don't want to do is, is frankly create podcasts that people bore people and they listen to a minute and a half or two minutes and they turn it off. By the way, listeners, if you're still listening, we're at about 15 minutes. So congratulations. We did that with you. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but it's interesting because like it probably took me 50 or 70 or maybe even 100 episodes before I realized, oh, yeah, you know, this is something we've really got to focus on, which is the story, because we remember those stories. Right. That's right. I mean, when I think about my entire public school education and how some of it, so much of it just becomes kind of like lost in the ether somewhere. And then I think about the specific moments of my teacher lecturing that I still remember. It's the stories they told. And it just stays with you. There's so many different synapses firing all at once to hear a story. And so it just finds its home in our memory. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously start with that story. How do people make sure, this is going to be a weird question, but how do people make sure they have a powerful story that connects to other people? It's not actually a weird question at all to me, Dolph, because this is one of the things I get pretty frustrated with, with people who evangelize the power of storytelling. I mean, I've seen probably going on 10 or a dozen presentations on the power of storytelling. And you want to know what the recurring theme of all of them is other than storytelling? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, they don't tell a story in their presentation. And I just don't understand how that happens. And, or at least I didn't. And what I think the reason is, is that it's actually kind of hard to mine out stories that really are going to land, that really are going to have an impact. And whether it's in the nonprofit space or in any other context where we're telling a true story about our lives, there's one ingredient that makes a story as compelling and as valuable as it is. And why not? I'm going I'm to teach this concept with another story because I don't want to, I, I want to practice what I'm preaching here, right? And so when I was in fourth grade, my class did a production of the Jungle Book based on the Disney cartoon. And I played King Louie the orangutan and I had a big song and dance number. And I was a real ham and I was really into it. And I put all his energy into my role. But the first time I wore a costume was in the first performance where we performed in front of half the elementary school. And so I was wearing, I won't go into everything I wore, but I was wearing brown tights as part of my costume and I was wearing big furry gorilla slippers. And so my role is just to dance around and kick my legs all over the place and stuff. And I started to do that in the middle of the performance and the left slipper fell off my foot and landed in the pit between the stage and the audience. And then I had the fourth grade equivalent of an oh crap moment. I'm pretty sure that wasn't what I said because I was 10, but a split second later, I just, I don't even know what possessed me to do it. I just reared my right foot back and hurled the other slipper off my foot and sailed halfway across the auditorium and everyone went berserk. 
And we would get letters from kindergartners and first graders in the days that followed, like, like on construction paper with drawings and stuff. And many of them wrote about how much they loved how the lion, and they didn't know I was an ape, but they loved how the lion kicked off his slippers. So it was an unqualified success. And I realized that sometimes the greatest catastrophes are the greatest opportunities for success. And so what I've done is provided a true story about my life and it very prominently features an ingredient that is this thing that makes a story worth telling. And the ingredient is when the left slipper fell off my foot. And the reason why it's so important is because it's a moment I didn't see coming. It was a moment of the unexpected. And why is the unexpected the most important ingredient? Because what did I have to do immediately after? I kicked the other slipper off. I had to adapt. And the adaptation is where I learned the lesson that the greatest catastrophes are the greatest opportunities for success. And the lesson is the takeaway. The lesson is what a nonprofit leader is going to want their message to be so as to empower their audience. If they're speaking at a gala, for example, and they have 10 minutes as the CEO to speak and thank everyone, if they told a story that features the unexpected and the, the lesson that came from that adaptation, then everyone else in the room suddenly has that lesson, that takeaway. And so that's why the unexpected becomes so important to feature. And it also becomes a way to figure out what kind of story could I tell here? Neil, let me share with you why I love that so much. Sure. Obviously, I've got a podcast, but I've also, over the course of my career, done a lot of public speaking. And, and I've pretty much been comfortable with it for the most part. Mm -hmm. But what I love about that is almost everyone who does public speaking, unless what they're doing is literally having everything written out and they're reading it, and that is horrible. Let me just say, yeah, listeners, if that's what you're doing, please, please just stop. Stop doing this. <laughs> like, please do yourself and your audience favor. Um, but so where I'm going with this is, unless you're reading your script, there's always that point where the slipper falls off. There was something in your head you planned to say and you didn't say it, or there's something that you messed up the way you wanted to, you know, you did not say it the way you wanted to. So there's always that point in which the slipper falls off. And that's so often where I think people in public speaking settings start to fall apart. It's like they make one mistake and then they make another and they make an additional one instead of just embracing it and, you know, having some fun with it. Whether it's, oh, I used the wrong word and so you do a double entendre around the wrong word or whatever, you know, to kind right. of then recover. But that's what I love about that story is, is like that's the grade school equivalent of what we should be doing as public speakers when we don't quite do exactly what we wanted to. That's right. That's right. And there are so many different ways that we can look at these larger concepts in all of that. And I mean, I imagine some of our listeners might even be wondering, even apart from the speaking and all of that, in terms of mining out the stories and asking the questions of how do I know if I have these kinds of stories, if you're a nonprofit organization that is having an impact, you automatically can make use of the unexpectedness factor because any night and day results that you get, let's say you are educating student, like children in, in third world type countries, and they have like a 23% literacy rate 
at some point in time, like with young children. And then through the work that you do for a decade, you've gotten that up to 34% literacy. That is a night and day transformation. And all of a sudden you have the unexpectedness built in through the surprise. It used to be this, and now it's this. And, or, or if you're doing food insecurity here stateside and you're like, we had one young child who struggled in school and we just got nutritious meals into his home every week for six months. And he went from being a, a, a student with a 55 average to up to a C plus average of 78 or whatever it is. Anything like whether it's a specific story or large statistical stories, these are all unexpected things that your audience didn't see coming, but built in perfectly to the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Neil, I want to make sure that we have got time for the off the map question because listeners, this is a great one. In researching you, I ran across an Instagram account, which, by the way, does not have a lot of followers. I'm hoping we can maybe double your number of followers. And I, and I don't mean that as an insult, but I think I saw like 133 followers or something like that. So I Yeah, I don't promote it. I don't yeah, promote it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I assume it's like your friends and family account, you know, so they can see you doing exactly. something goofy. Yeah. So, exactly. um, so I understand you have an Instagram account. I understand. I've seen it. That's really kind of off the chain unique. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about it? What I, this goes back almost 20 years when, um, when my ex wanted me to go with her to Las Vegas and I wasn't into Las Vegas at all. And I just wanted to kind of make fun of it a little bit. And ironically, I would eventually grow to like Las Vegas. So, but I was not into it as a young man. And so I was like, I'll go with you, but you got to start taking some goofy pictures of me so I could put together a satirical presentation around it. And one of the ways that I was, I did the, um, I did a bunch of goofy pictures and all that, but this time, but one of the main things I did was just start putting my finger in the noses of the various statues and sculptures in Las Vegas. And what I found was just that that was to me the most hilarious thing to do because we take in, especially in the age of social media, which wasn't happening back then, but now social media, like people taking pictures of their food and all the selfies and the, 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 the banality to me, I'm being pretty critical of it, honestly, because I think it's pretty, I do think it's pretty banal overall. So this Instagram account is entirely devoted to me putting my finger in the noses of statues. And there are four rules. Rule number one, inanimate noses only. You can't put it in the nose of some alive person. Rule number two is the exception to rule number one, which is celebrities are okay. So if any celebrities are listening, they want me to put my finger in their nose, then that would be all right. Rule number three is uh, three-dimensional noses, no pictures of noses. And rule number four is no mannequins because that's lame. You know, Neil, I like the fact that you have rules around this, that it's not yes. a free-for-all finger-in-the-nose oh, thing. No, no, no. I no. like that. <laughs> I'm glad, Dolph, that you took to this so well. So many of my friends are just like, all right, he's back with more noses. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's awesome. <laughs> I, I also have to share with you, I really enjoy the negotiation you had with your partner around law, about, about going to Las Vegas. Okay, I'll do it, but you have to do some goofy poses with me so I can create a satirical presentation. Like, that's exactly the kind of thing that would happen in my household. 
<laughs> you know, looking back, I would never do that now with a romantic partner. I would never make conditions. If someone wanted something from me, I would just make it happen. And so it's funny telling that story. I actually felt self-conscious like that's not actually who I am now. But it is legitimately the origin story of the nose finger thing. So well, it's clear I, I wanted to be authentic. It's it's clear you've grown because you now like Las Vegas. Although I have to admit, Las Vegas not I've only been there I think twice, and not yeah. my not my favorite place in the world. Um, maybe yeah. if I go there a third or fourth time, maybe it will grow on me the way it's grown on you. <laughs> I just got into pie gal poker to be quite honest. So if I go to Vegas, I'll go play at the tables a little bit. But it's also not something people tend to know about me is that I. You know, just, you know, set a $100 limit. I won't ever lose more than that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I say, I, I don't really know how to play cards, so there's not a lot of not a lot of excitement for me with Vegas. I went once, oh gosh, I went once uh, for an association meeting. I was board chair of that association. And then the second time, my husband accepted a, a timeshare um, sales pitch, but I had to go too. And I only found yeah. out it was accepted after after he agreed to do it and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to Vegas. But I will admit, unlike you, I'm not I'm not as big of a person as you. I did put a condition on it. I was like, but I need to go to the Hoover Dam. And so I, uh, I went out to yeah. the Hoover Dam and that was off the chain amazing. Made it worth going to Vegas. Yeah. Oh, oh well there you go. I mean we can look at it any number of ways. And and having having negotiations among partners and spouses is a very it can be a very productive and and very helpful thing. In, in just perpetuating good vibes all around, which is obviously the ideal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Neil, thank you so much for coming on today. And I want to make sure that all of our listeners know how to reach out to you. And listeners, Neil has the easiest URL to remember, even though we will put it in the show notes, the easiest URL to remember. That's neilcanhelp.com. Now, there's two things I want to make sure you check out there. The first, as soon as you go there, you're going to see that you can take a quiz. And I suggest that you take the quiz. It will give you some results that will help you better understand your own speaking style and how to structure your talks and your presentations to be even more effective. Now, the other thing I want you to do there also are some free trainings at his website, and you've got you've to look around a little bit to find it, and we will link to those in the show notes too. Also worth your time. You will learn more about Neil and Neil's approach, and you will also probably find yourself going, huh, maybe I need to do some more work with Neil. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Been a delight, Dolph. I really enjoyed our conversation. So listeners, Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this episode with Neil Gordon, there are two episodes that I want you to think about listening to. The first is episode 211, and that is the story your voice tells with Tracy Goodwin. You may remember that Tracy Goodwin is my own uh, vocal and speech coach, and she came on and talked about the psychology of the voice and the ways in which embracing our own psychology and our own voice psychology will make us more powerful speakers. Also, I want you to think about episode 181, we did not talk a lot about the written word today, even though, frankly, Neil's really awesome at that as well. So I would suggest in episode 181 that you listen to um, Nikki Krozik 
on how to write effective copy that gets noticed. So sometimes you're speaking, but sometimes, you know, you're writing a solicitation letter or an email newsletter or maybe just an email to an individual and you want what you write to stand out. So that's another excellent episode to listen to. Listeners, once again, I think this is probably airing right before I go on vacation, but I am looking forward to being back from vacation and working with all of my clients and prospective clients as we all move toward 2022. And that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I say this every episode, you know I'm not an accountant. I'm also not an attorney. This should surprise no one because I did not go to attorney school and I did not go to accounting school. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. That should also surprise no one because I already said I did not go to attorney school and I did not go to accounting school. This episode is for informational purposes only. And I have to tell you, this episode had a lot of great information and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Honestly, if that's what you're looking for, please, please don't look for it from podcasts. Find a qualified, licensed professional who can help you. And if you have a very specific need, you can reach out to me. And if I know a licensed, qualified professional in your area who I would be willing to recommend, I am happy to connect the two of you. 